We uh, continue in our second uh, study on the book of Joshua. Uh, You'll find it if you want to use the Pew Bible. It's on page 178. Or if you've got your own Bible and you're still not sure, it's like the fifth book uh, in the Old Testament. We'll be reading Joshua chapter 2. Very interesting account, as almost every chapter, of course, every chapter in Joshua uh, is. But uh, this one, many interesting things in this chapter for us to consider and hopefully to grow in God's grace thereby. So chapter 2, verse 1. After the introduction of chapter 1, where God commissions Joshua, Joshua commissions his people, uh, and the people of Israel commission him right back. That is, they encourage him as well. Uh, then we have this, this move on Joshua's part. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who've come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then... Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly And faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. And as you'll see, this is more of a summary statement of what was going to happen. For her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. 
And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. That's the reading of God's word. He blessed it to our understanding, our obedience, our, our, our faith. Let us pray. Lord, bless us as we consider uh, this account of the spies going into Jericho and Rahab's confession of faith. Lord, work in our hearts uh, that we might grow in your grace. Lord, that we might see your glory and beauty. And Lord, that we might live out your the faith in Jesus Christ in, in our situation, in our culture. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. It's always important for me when I'm booking a hotel to get that confirmation number, right? And I kind of picture, I kind of wonder, what is the power of a confirmation number? And I kind of think this, that, you know, imagine coming to the desk and, and they say, I'm sorry, Mr. Jordan, we don't have a reservation for you. And I said, you think you don't have a reservation? You think you don't? I have a confirmation number. That's how I'll say it, just like that. And of course, even if the whole hotel is full, every last room, then I imagine that the confirmation number, if, if need be, it will create a new room, you know? It's a confirmation number. There's, there's nothing you can say once you have the confirmation number. Well, this confession that Rahab has beginning in verse uh, 9 forms the centerpiece of this whole account. Uh, if you want to see a little bit of the structure of this whole passage and even her speech itself, it's beautifully composed. Uh, there's a paper on the back if you'd like to get that. But this confession is actually, as you can see in verse 24, brought back to Joshua almost verbatim. In fact, the, the last part of the land melt away is exactly her words. And this becomes a kind of confirmation number to the Israelites. 
You have all of these promises of God, but here is the evidence he is already fulfilling that promise. All of those promises are actually taking place. And so we're, whatever we say, we're going to center everything, of course, around uh, that wonderful confession and what we learn from it in this whole drama. Now, first there, you can see in your outline the drama of the entrance. It's, it's interesting how people take opportunity to criticize biblical characters sometimes when there's no need for it. And some actually say Joshua shouldn't have sent in spies because he had the promise of God. What does he need after that? But what commander of any army is not going to do reconnaissance, you know, is not going to try to find out where the enemy is and what the enemy's like so that he can wield his forces. Uh, Yes, he believed the promises of God. You might say because he believed the promises of God, he sends in the spies. This really confirms him as a great leader because he is gathering intelligence. And just a few words about those first sentences that they may have done a lot of observation in the whole city, but these kind of situations where a a place could be frequented by men like this house uh, would be the place they had eventually planned to get to. But somewhere along the way, as they make their way to that house, uh, the uh, the enemy finds its own intelligence, uh, finds them out. And these places often are, of course, places for secret meetings and collaboration. This may have been, there are some uh, scholarship on both ways in this, but it may have been more of like a tavern or a hostel, a way station. And there's evidence from this period of time that there were overnight places of accommodation and they were used by caravans, they were used by royal uh, messengers. Uh, but even if so, it would also draw the underside of a society, the underside of a region, and, be, and, and use of it could be made in that direction as well. Uh, but a great place to visit to try to find out more about the area, to see if there's any collaboration with anybody, uh, of course, a place to rest. And, and uh, so interesting about it all, though, is that divine providence brought them together. You know, God's uh, work brought them for him, them to meet her and her them. And as they, she puts them in and immediately it seems from the account or at least some point after they come in, she's challenged by the agents of the king to bring forth these guys and it's, pro- it's really amazing how decisive and quick thinking Rachel is. And it may be that God is even using her gifts that she's may have covered for other people before uh, in her situation. Uh, and what she may even imply in what she says to them that they got what they wanted and they've left. That's a possibility in the text. So all these things, these nuances are kind of floating around in here. But the point is that uh, how clever she is in telling them the moments now, if you don't get out there and get them, you're going to miss them. 
That's probably the brightest thing she did. So they don't consult with the king. They don't think about it. They just think, we got to get out there and get them. And so they're gone. And there's some comedy here because they go outside on a wild goose chase and the gates close behind them. You know, So well, you're not going to find anything and you can't even get back in the city now. Um, so, and, and also there's this idea as well of God's divine care to protect these men, uh, to maybe cause the men not to be able to see the reality, not to search the house like they should have. Um, and I, it made me think of Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for, right? <laughs> And you don't know what God in his providence and his uh, power did to make sure that these uh, were not uh, caught in this way. But she changes what up to this point is a calamity motive, right? Motif where you're wondering what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And then suddenly as she begins her speech, it turns from a calamity motif to a deliverance motif. Like you're wondering, are they going to get free? Are they going to get free? Well, not only that, but here's an announcement. They're going to take the land, see? So it's a remarkable turnaround. And her renunciation of her allegiance to Jericho is prominent here. It shows her absolute loyalty of to Israel by hiding the spies uh, in lying to the agent, she risks her own life. She realizes where life is to be had. It's to be had with Yahweh and his people, not to be had in Jericho. She sees that plainly. And her only hope is to uh, be uh, give herself up. And so in this sense, she sacrifices herself for the good of Israel. Remarkable, this pagan Canaanite woman who now lays down her life for the sake of God's people. And again, there's a, there's a criticism level. Uh, this really is interesting to me. There, there seems to be a, uh, a lot of um, uh, conscience about the fact that she lied. And the plain fact is, friends, is that this is war, Right? I mean, even in a football game, what linebacker is going to sit after a play and say, I thought you were going to pass and it was a draw play. That's not fair, right? You know, every play, everything is a deception. That's just the nature of the game. And everything in war is about deception, gaining an advantage of the enemy, trying to send out false information. So, just realized that her allegiance had shifted. She was not really a part of Jericho anymore. She actually was siding with Israel. And in Rahab, Israel already had a presence in Jericho. Isn't that interesting? He already put a presence of a worshiper in Jericho. So this is the uh, opening drama of the entrance uh, as they come into uh, Jericho itself. And then this glorious confession that uh, she breaks out with in uh, verse 9. And notice, he has given the land. It's a done deal. It's over. It's settled in her head. And this 
this statement of giving the land comes at the, it's kind of a climax of statements that have begun to be made in Genesis chapter 12 to the father of Israel, Abraham, through all, to Jacob, through Isaac, to, uh, all, and to Israel over and over through the four, uh, five, the five books that preceded. And if you add up giving the land, possession, which is another word in chapter 1, inherit or territory some 200 times. I counted them, okay? It's amazing that this just dots the landscape throughout all the books, those first five books. And then giving the land is mentioned at least eight times in chapter 1 to show that this is what Joshua is all about. It's the giving of the land. And then here, after all that build up through five books and then the uh, concentration of it in chapter one, she comes and declares, he's given you the land. So this comes as a, as a confirmation of hundreds of related promises and the packed promises of chapter one, even the dread was promised, the, the, the melt, hearts melting away, all of these things were predicted and she is saying it's done. He's already fulfilling his promise. And this, the land is so important because it represents their relationship to God. The land represents their belonging to God. When he says, I will be your God, and I, I, I am your God, here's the physical expression of that promise. A place where you can be protected, a place where you can know peace and flourishing as you give yourself up to me. And for us, all the things that we have in Christ Jesus, as we've become the temple and dwelling place of God, as the land was the dwelling place of God, we're the very body of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. All that we have in him is a token of our everlasting glory, our feasting, our rejoicing in him. We have so much in Christ as the people of God, and it points us, as even the land does, to the final resurrection and inheritance of God's people. But it's hard to underestimate the importance of the land and what it represents as uh, standing for the relationship that they have with God. That's why when they reject God, what happens? They get thrown off the land. It's not just an empty place. This is the place where God is to be worshipped and loved. This represents that relationship. And when you break that relationship, you're cast off the land. Interesting that Rahab is the person who introduces God or Yahweh into the chapter. She's the one who mentions Yahweh in the narrative of chapter 2. And when she mentions the, in verse 10, and verse 10 is really the center centerpiece of her speech, mentions the drying up of the Red Sea and then the defeat of the kings. That's the first thing that he did and the last thing that he did. So it's really a summary statement of all that you have done, all that God has done uh, through you. Uh, she's summarizing Yahweh's great deeds. 
And you notice she begins by saying, the Lord has given you the land. And she ends by saying, he's the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She acknowledges he has the power and right to exercise his authority throughout the whole universe. It's quite a confession from this Canaanite prostitute. She realizes that it's God, Yahweh, who controls the destiny of the world. She realizes and admits he's the only functioning God, basically, in heaven and in earth. He is God running the show, who's on the throne, who even has a throne, whose plan is being carried out in heaven and earth. And it's remarkable that she makes this confession with so little firsthand evidence. Isn't it amazing that initially when Israel had witnessed these things firsthand, 40 years before when they were about to come in the land, they turned away because they did not believe in all the things they had seen. But here's this lady who's just heard about them. And God gives her grace to embrace this sovereign God. What she saw is truly astounding. I've had a funny thing happen recently with my uh, I got a new phone, and among its many features, there's a face recognition feature. So it works most all the time, except it doesn't work first thing in the morning. <laughs> really, it doesn't. I mean, I've tried it several times. And it's as though my phone is saying, sorry. I don't do ugly, right? <laughs> I imagine it thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I restricted to recognizing human faces, not this. Or maybe, hey, you were pushing it with your original ugly, but this is over the top. I can't do this, right? <clears throat> so here, Rahab, you might say, had special face recognition. She saw the glory of God, the greatness and power of God. She saw what no one else could see. She saw majesty, even goodness, because she was entrusting herself to this God. And with the smallest light available, when no one else did, everybody else opposed it. She still believed. That's not a... Not to put a big praise on her, it's the evidence of what God did. The evidence of God's sovereign work to move her, to open her eyes, to see. And brothers and sisters, always hope in what God might do for any person, any time, in any situation, that they might see the glory of God and how much more when we are presenting. And this was glorious to hear of God delivering them in the Red Sea, delivering them from Sion and Og, all of the other things. But we bring something that's so much greater. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 3 to compare what Christ accomplished to what all was accomplished in the Old Testament. Uh, 
it's like the former glory isn't even glorious anymore. It's like you had a match in a dark room, but suddenly the sun comes up and you can hardly see the match. That's how glorious our message is of this God to proclaim to people. Think of telling what God has done for sinners, his sacrificial deliverance, his love for his enemies. He's taking us to be his children, making us joint heirs with Christ. And I love Ralph Davis's comment here, uh, talking about the faith of Rachel. He says, genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but presses on to take refuge in God. It doesn't matter that you say, well, I believe there's a God. I believe in God. I'm not atheist. Well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. Okay, I'll, I'll grant you all that. Do you so believe in him that you take refuge in him? That's what faith is, to take refuge in this God, as Rahab is doing. Rahab must know the clear truth about God, Davis goes on to say, but also must escape the coming wrath of God. It isn't a matter of just correct belief, but desperate need. Are you resting just on correct belief? Oh, I believe the right things about God. I've learned some things. That I know the right things. But are you acting out of desperate need like she was? To put yourself in the hands of this God because you so sinned against him that your need is desperate. All of our need is desperate. We must have this God to be rescued. Because just as sure as wrath was coming to Canaan... Wrath is coming to this world. And we must have Jesus Christ. Interesting that Paul, in talking to the Thessalonians, which the ladies are doing in Bible study, says in the very first chapter, you turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's who he is. He's the son who delivers us from the wrath to come. And the gospel message goes out and says, here's the amazing thing. This God has taken in the person of Christ, he's come to earth, taken upon himself humanity, and he's borne the wrath that you deserve. Won't you come and take refuge in him? He has, he's made the provision for you to be rescued. From the wrath to come. This very God against whom you sinned. So saving faith runs to take refuge under his wings. Against all the doubts, against Satan's cries of how wicked you are or how much you don't deserve it or how many times you fail. Faith takes refuge, runs under his wings. Believing there is abundant mercy in God. There is forgiveness in him. Well, I, it encourages me to think, okay, she heard the message of God's mighty deeds. And look what she came to understand. Brothers and sisters, have faith, as Paul calls it, the power of the gospel. The power of the message of God coming in the flesh to act on the behalf of mankind. What 
kind of images will God bring in their mind? What kind of turnaround as people all over the world coming from various religions, finding out that God is not what they thought. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of goodness. He's a God of love. I didn't know God was like that. That's what we have the opportunity to make known. And as we see... the. As we see God's work in her heart and how much she was able to see, uh, we realize again and again and again and again, God will do this. God will enable people to see him. Well, that's the confirmation, right, in those verses. And then verse 12 begins this commitment. But and I'm, when I talk about commitment, I mean commitment one to the other. Like, we will deliver you, but you can't give us away. All your family has to be in the room, and you have to have this red cord tied outside. So she, of course, agrees to it. And by the way, when, by the time they got back to Joshua and they weren't caught, nobody came out to look for them in the hills, they realized she kept her into the bargain. And, of course, when they're marching around the city in chapter 6, see the red cord. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that that, that house is to be rescued. And... Uh, we actually will get to this, but she actually is rescued as, as you read at the end of chapter six. But see, this makes her house a kind of sacred space in a way. Kind of makes her house like Israel was in Egypt when the, the uh, angel passed over because of the blood of the door. Now, I don't think the blood of the of the, the, the crimson cord. It never describes blood, this word in the Old Testament. I I think that's a stretch to say this represents that. Uh, It was simply a clear signal as to where her house was. Um, But um, this this was the place where God would protect uh, her and her family. And she acted in faith. She acted in, in trusting this God by having her family there. Um, so she's basically acting in this passage, verses 12 through 21, as a spokeswoman and an agent for her whole family. And in here, she completely, of course, renounces her city. She renounces her very life. Um, and she renounces it all for God. And the amazing thing here is at the end of chapter 6, when it describes the fact that she is rescued, it says uh, her household, everything belonged to her, were saved alive, and she's lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers. End of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, Achan. So here's the outsider who's included in Israel, and now we've got an insider, Achan, who's excluded from Israel. So it's not whether you belong to Israel ethnically. Are you faithful to God? Do you trust God? If so, outsiders can come under his wing. If you refuse and rebel against him, you must be cast out. So an interesting juxtaposition at the end of chapter 6 and going into um, chapter uh, uh, 7 there. And of course, she knew that she could be put to death, but she feared God more than the king himself. 
And so uh, we were left in the last uh, place for the drama of the exit. And here just some applications uh, for us. It's interesting as they bring back her message to Joshua. And of course, it would be disseminated to the whole of Israel. It's usually a prophet or a priest who encourages an army before they go to battle. But God has a Canaanite prostitute encourage them before they go into battle. She fulfills that role as they virtually quote her. They accept her words to be true, to be from God, to be an evidence of God's work. And what a contrast. Uh, Some may not know, but 40 years earlier, they had sent in spies, 12 of them. Um, 10 of them came back with a disheartening, negative view because they saw the walled cities. They saw the great armies. They just knew, and they're probably right. It'd be like, I was going to box somebody and somebody comes in. It's Mike Tyson. You're dead. You know, fall on the canvas, try not to get killed. That's kind of how they felt as they saw what they were facing. But two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, because they believed in God, they believed in the power of God, they came back and said, we can take this. We can take uh, Canaan. But of course, Israel followed the ten and they turned away and all that generation died in the wilderness over 40 years. So see, that's another thing working here is... The spies come back with the testimony from a Canaanite, not just the false testimony of their own people who were discouraged from what they saw. And this person who was under the ban, sentenced to death, then as we read in Matthew chapter 1, she becomes a part of the royal line of David. And an ancestress of the Messiah. It reminds us that in our poverty, in our poverty of being sinners before God, deserving his wrath, we are made, we're we're forgiven of our sins, we're given uh, sanctuary, and we're we're given presence before God himself. We're made co-heirs with Christ, children of God. We who deserved death. So there's some parallels to this woman of such degradation being exalted to such a place. And Matthew is, makes a point. He could have covered that over. But he makes a point at the beginning of Matthew. Even as he's giving the evidence that Jesus is straight Israelite. He includes her and Ruth to show, you know what this is all about? This is all about reaching the whole world, the Gentiles, for the gospel. And it's already woven into the very genealogy. (laughs) That's the position that she uh, receives. And Rahab not only is included there, but in James Uh, It's interesting. First, the three people in the Old Testament that that have this phrase, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Three people. One is Moses. Pretty, pretty important. Two is Solomon. Pretty big king. Three is Rahab. 
What an exalted position. And in James 2, James is giving, uh, uh, he's presenting people who acted according to their faith and demonstrated their faith by what they do. She names two people, Abraham, Rahab. And then in the cavalcade of people who believe and exhibited their faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you have this series of people. Each of them has, you know, a paragraph or more. Uh, But the very last one before he gets into his rapid fire and everybody else part, Rahab. Emphasis on Rahab, what God did for Rahab. And his uh, first says, God clearly delights in this story of providing such evidence of his work through such a person as Rahab and the position that he gives her. And this should encourage any of us, all of us as sinners, that God is ready to bring us in no matter what our sin, to forgive us, especially in light of Jesus Christ dying for sinners to come to him and know that not only will we be welcomed, but in Christ we will be embraced and cherished and adored and given the run of the kingdom, so to speak. The kingdom has been given to his people who don't deserve it. And so for us, uh, we have this confirmation not in, uh, not, not in a report from Rahab, but as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 1, what is the confirmation? The confirmation number, you might say, for all the promises of God. He says it in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, Jesus is the yes to all the promises of God. I think that's what Jesus means when he says, pray in my name. Associate all your prayers with me, what I've done, what I've accomplished, the salvation that is yours, and expect God to act in keeping with what I've done. He's our constant assurance that nothing will separate us from God. As Paul uses it in Romans 8, that he will cause all things, all good things to flow towards you because he's given you Christ Jesus And brothers and sisters, if God was paving the way for the people of God there by preparing hearts, in this case, their hearts melting within them, they're losing all their courage, how much more do you think God will be moving ahead of his believing people who are bringing the gospel to Fort Worth? Do you think, do you think we might could believe in the great things God is and will do even before we get there in preparing people for us to speak the gospel into their lives? What a great love that he's lavished upon us, that we are his children, that we can experience this grace and that we can announce this grace to the world. Let us pray. Lord, bless us, we pray, to be encouraged by the faith of this woman, by the grace that was shown to her, by the dignity you gave her in your salvation and in your mercy.
Lord, enable us to see that we stand in the same place as her. We all have turned against you. We've gone and whoring after other gods. All of us, all of us love ourselves more than you and more than one another by nature. And yet you come after us in our degradation to have us for yourself, to take away our sins, to cleanse us and bring us in your house to make us your children and heirs with Christ forever. Oh, Lord, enable us to be encouraged by the power of this message in this dark world and what you will be doing to work in people's lives and hearts as we go. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.